Well, hey guys, it's good to be here. Like you said, my name's Corey. We're gonna jump right in because I went long the first service and they uh, threatened to crucify you if you do that at TLC. So, uh, no, I, I'm kidding, but I'm glad you're here. And like you said, if it's your first time, man, I'm really stoked you're here. And here's my one word of warning. If it is your first time and you don't like it, I'm not the normal guy. So come back next week and give it another shot. I'm like the crazy uncle that gets to plop in and say whatever I want to say as long as it's based in scripture and then leave and let Austin and Torin and Jordan clean up the mess. So that's what we're going to do today. If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter what? Nice. Good job. I believe preaching is best when it is a dialogue, not a monologue. Um, you can wake your head and heart up by agreeing out of your mouth, and at the bare minimum, it'll wake the person next to you up. So if I say anything you agree with, just give it like an amen if you grew up in church. If you didn't, you can give it like a mm-hmm, right on, that's what's up, whatever you want, just agree. But hey, as you turn there, I do want to give you an update. Like Austin said, um, I get to kind of travel and speak at our Water's Edge family churches. Um, I also get to serve and, and lead our international location. So yes, I did plant a church down in Kingston, Jamaica. Any Jamaicans in the house? Yeah, you would know. They're loud. Yeah, there's none. Yeah. Watuguan to all the Jamaicans watching online. Love you and miss you guys. We're finally coming out of the pandemic season out of there. Had our first regathering uh, about two weeks ago. And then we have our next one. Somebody like almost clapped. I appreciate you. I'm excited about that too. Um, but we're like getting going back again once a month. But I wanted to give you guys an update before we jump into the word of God. When he says Water's Edge, like that's a big deal. Um, there's seven churches around the United States that are a part of our family of churches. And the local church was the first one um, that was planted and grew in Water's Edge. So Central over in Holland, about 45 minutes from here, sent out Pastor Torin and Jordan and the team. And we're all sitting here today because other people gave a bunch of money so that we could sit here. Isn't that awesome? four of you. Okay. No, it's okay. We're going to get there. It's all right. I know we're all still sleepy, but here's the cool part. Since you were the first one, you guys gave and you guys lived out this model of we're going to step into the water for people behind us. That's what water's edge is. Check out Joshua chapter three. It's an amazing passage. I'm not preaching on it today, but you should read it. But anyway, so you guys did that for other people. And because of that, we have six other domestic locations, but right now we have um, Hope and Life Church in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. We have Pangrango Church in Bogor, Indonesia. We have Zeal down in Kingston, Jamaica. We have God's Design Church, Bearspool Bible Church, God's Family Church, and Transformation Church in Kiev, Ukraine. And we have our newest campus, who I was with just last week, Iglesia La Ciudad down in Lima, Peru. All of those churches exist because of people like you. Thank you, guys. And here's the, here's the cool part. Like when the war busted out in Ukraine and everybody in the U.S. was like, oh, we got to help them. How do we get to know people in Ukraine? We had family there. I had been in Ukraine four times in the two years that led up to the war. We give thousands of dollars every year to support the work of the ministry there. And since the war broke out, because of the generosity of you and our domestic churches, we've given over $150,000 to the churches in Ukraine to support the humanitarian refugee and relief efforts, not only in Kyiv, but now we're partnering with churches in Lithuania, Romania, and Germany to receive refugees. And then we have given over 150 pounds of humanitarian aid every day through our four churches there since war broke out. That's because of you guys and your generosity here. Look at the person next to you and tell them you're awesome. Just tell somebody you're amazing. So on behalf of Pastor Peter Machenko and all our Ukrainian pastors, on behalf of Pastor Sandy and Pastor Pana in Cambodia and Indonesia, on behalf of the crazy Jamaicans down in the West Indies and Pastor Sebastian, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a giving, kind, amazing people. Now that I've said a bunch of nice things, we're going to dig into a really hard passage of scripture. Y'all ready? Two of you again. Okay, here we go. It's all right. The title of my message is Go To. Somebody say Go To. Go to. 
Now say it like you mean it. Say, go to. You'll see why we're saying that here in a second. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus launches into what most historians, especially most theologians, would consider to be the best, the greatest sermon ever preached. If you are a public communicator, public speaker in any way, you need to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you are in ministry, if you are a Christ follower, if you aspire to be a Bible teacher in any way, you should like memorize Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Literally, he said things on this hillside that changed the tra trajectory of humanity forever. Many of us have principles that we live out today that we didn't realize Jesus was the OG of. He was the author of in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this sermon, many of you, if you grew up in church and you speak Christianese, you know it's called the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount, right? I think that's a horrible title. That's like me saying the name of my sermon today is the Sermon on the Stage. Um, tells you nothing about the sermon except for where it was preached. Um, so I would encourage you, if you have a paper Bible, um, maybe scratch out the word mount. By the way, you're like, is that, can you do that? The subheadings are not scripture. We added those later on. It's like the numbers in the chapters. That's just our opinion. Subheadings, you can change. It's okay. So I would encourage you, scratch out the word mount and change it to monarchy. A better title for Matthew 5, 6, and 7 would be the Sermon on the Monarchy. Because I don't know if you know this, Jesus' entire message was not prayer, prayer, and get your get out of hell free card. That, he never said that, right? He actually, like, the salvation prayer really isn't in Scripture, which is crazy, right? Because, like, we base so much of what we do around that. Some of you looked at me like, <gasps> right? But, like, but Jesus' whole message actually was the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. His entire MO, his number one message was he came to announce the proclamation of a brand new kingdom that supersedes all worldly power structures because it was a kingdom of the mind, a kingdom of the heart, a kingdom that changed everything. And he came and said, the kingdom, the monarchy is here. And we don't get kingdom really well in the U.S. Like, that doesn't land for us. Like, we're in a democracy. When we don't like a leader, we're like, we're going to vote you out. You don't do that in a monarchy. <laughs> you submit in a monarchy. But the beautiful news was, out of all the kings on planet Earth, there really wasn't many good ones. And Jesus was a perfect one, and a loving one, and a kind one, and a gracious one. And, and, and did y'all know that's why they killed him? Like, they didn't kill him because he healed people. They didn't kill him because he fed people. They didn't kill him because he taught good things. They killed him because he said, the kingdom is here. And they're like, hold up, bro, what kingdom? And he's like, the kingdom of God. And guess what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one gets into the kingdom. No one knows the kingdom without knowing the king. And the king is Jesus. They killed him because they were in Rome. And Rome had a king. His name was Caesar. And to say that you were a king was to buck right up against Caesar. That's why they killed him. He said some pretty crazy stuff. And in Matthew 5, he says some paradigm-shifting things. And we're going to jump to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Y'all ready? All right, here we go. Matthew 5, verse 38. We'll put it on the screen. Here we go. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You have heard that it was said. I just like that. We're going to do exegetical study today. That's another Christianese word that just means verse by verse, word by word. So we're just going to work through this. He says, you have heard that it was said. I love that Jesus starts into this monologue with that statement. Because what that statement says is Jesus was the savior of the streets. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus did not grow up in a palace. He was not the son of a white-collar tech CEO. <laughs> Jesus grew up the son of a blue-collar woodworker in the nowhere town of Nazareth. 
Nazareth, if you do your research, had no economic value, no trade routes. So let me put it in modern day vernacular. Jesus was a kid in a trailer park. Jesus grew up in the ghetto. Anybody have any struggle in your, like, anybody grow up poor? Like, I grew up poor. Like, we couldn't afford the R. Like, like <laughs> I grew up really poor. I grew up struggling. Like, I'm grateful for it. My parents worked hard. Praise be to God. Like, you know, keep working up the ladder. But, but I love that our Jesus, the Savior, like, sweat from working hard. He had dirt under his fingernails. He bled. Like, Jesus was a savior of the streets who came from the streets. And I don't know about you, but that's just so refreshing for me to just know that, like, he wasn't this distant, far-off palace king, but he came from the dirt. He knows our struggle. He knows our pain. So if you've ever been through anything, just know that Jesus can relate. And so he starts, he goes, you've heard that it was said. We all know the law of the land. We all know the code of the jungle. We know the way this world works. And how is that? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many of you have heard that? Right? You know what's crazy? We all know that. But can you think of one time that like in grade school, in third grade, your teacher stood up and was like, now class, repeat after me, an eye for an eye and a tooth. No one does that. But yet we all know that. Why? Because it's what Jesus was saying. That's just the way the world works. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Like, that's the way the animal kingdom works. You have, like, two alpha gorillas. What's going to happen? They're going to hit. They're going to hit. They're going to fight. They're going to fight until one dominates. And then it's a top-down leadership structure, right? But Jesus came to shift that paradigm, to flip that paradigm upside down. The entire world naturally works strongest wins, strongest leads. And Jesus says, nope, the greatest among you will be your servant. I mean, sentence after sentence in this, he's just shifting it. But he says, you all know what's said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And we hear that, and some of us are going, Corey, I never, like, punch nobody in the eye. Some of you are like, I have. <laughs> Sorry. Who, raise your hand if you punch somebody. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. No. Look around. Pray for them. Um, but we're like, no, I've never, I've never, like, punched nobody in the eye. I've never knocked somebody's teeth out. But, but this is less of a physical statement and more of a pronunciation of a principle we all live by. Like, here's an example. I, I was hanging with some people a few months ago, and, and, and there was two girls in the car, and one of them um, started raising her voice. And another one started raising her voice back. And then this one goes, why are you raising your voice at me? And this one goes, I'm just matching your energy. <laughs> Sounds so spiritual, right? What is that? Eye for an eye. You raise your voice, I raise mine. Some of us, like... In relationships and couples or roommates, we know what that's like. You slam the door, I slam the door. You cuss at me, I cuss at you. You take from me, I take from you. You hurt one of mine, I'm going to hurt one of yours. You comment on my social media, girl, I'm about to put you on blast, right? Like, we still do this, and it's sad. And Jesus knew that. Because if it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye, it won't be long before humanity is left without its sight and its bite, toothless and blind with no real vision for our families and our churches and our cities and our countries because we're too busy backbiting and hurting each other and no real power because we're too busy knocking each other down. So Jesus says, hey, we all know the way the world works and much of our world still works like this. I do ministry in Kingston, Jamaica. There's gangs down there. You hurt one of ours, you better believe they're coming back at you. We live in a political society right now where Democrats and Republicans, you say this, we're going to say that. Like we still do this. And Jesus goes, but I say to you, that is one of the biggest, most beautiful buts in the Bible. It's so good. Thank you for you middle school humor people that giggled at that, like me. I appreciate you. But he says, but I say to you, 
do not resist the one who is evil. And at that moment, we should all go, what? Don't resist evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. Well, aren't we supposed to stand up against evil? Aren't we supposed to fight against darkness? What are you talking about here, Jesus? Don't resist the one who is evil. Now, let me be real clear. What Jesus is not saying is be a punching bag. He's not saying if you are in an abusive relationship or someone's taking advantage of you, he's not saying don't stand up for yourself. He's not saying don't get help. What he is saying when it comes to our own person, like me, I do not have to attack or defend myself. We stand up for and defend the defenseless, true religion, take care of orphans and widows. But when it comes to ourselves, one of my mentors down in Peru his pastor, he'd been pastoring down there for 50 years. I asked him, I said, what's one piece of advice you've learned that you would just pass on to me that you think was a life changer for you? And he just said this sentence. He said, never attack, don't defend. Never attack, don't defend. And I was like, what? That sounds like a fortune cookie. Like, break that down. And he said, well, when you attack, you show pride. When you defend, you show weakness. And we are neither prideful nor weak in Christ. God is our shield and defender. He defends us. We don't have to defend ourselves. And we don't attack anything but the enemy and the kingdom of darkness. But he's talking person to person here. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. And let me, let me be clear here. Jesus is about to launch into some hard statements, but I want to be clear. Jesus is not a pacifist. He's not endorsing pacifism here. A lot of people think like Jesus would never hurt somebody. You ain't read your Bible. Like Jesus strolled up on Palm Sunday to the church, to the temple. And what does it say? They had turned church to make it about money and not about helping people. And so it said, Jesus, 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 he, he made a whip. That means it was premeditated. That means Jesus is sitting outside the church like, I'm about to, I'm going to tear them up. And then he goes in and he flips over big tables and he whips grown men out of the temple. Talk about church discipline. What would you do if Torin showed up next week with a whip over his shoulder? You're like, ha, that'd be some good church, right? But Jesus was not a pacifist. We know in the book of Revelation that Jesus we serve is not baby Jesus. It's not Jesus on a cross. Those are momentary Jesus. He ain't in the manger and he ain't on a cross no more. Jesus, if you read the book of Revelation, is a warrior king riding on a white horse with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth and his robe dipped in the blood of his enemies with a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Check it out. It says it's on his thigh. Jesus has tattoos. Uh, but some of you are like, Mom, I can get one. No, that's not what I said. Uh, but anyways, so my point is, before we read this, don't think Jesus is saying be a punching bag. What Jesus is trying to get to and get us to understand is there is a deeper meaning to life that actually brings about more freedom, peace, and joy. And so he says, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, you have heard that it was said, and I for an eye tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Turn the other cheek. How many of you have heard that? Did you know Jesus was the OG of that? Like, he was the one that said that first. Turn the other cheek. And we hear that, and it's turned into such a cute cultural colloquialism today. Like, oh, I'll turn the other cheek. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to remind you, when Jesus said that, this wasn't a cultural colloquialism. This wasn't cute. He was speaking to a Jewish audience under the oppression and rule of Rome. So imagine, you're a six-foot-four, 280-pound Jewish man loving your wife, trying to do your best to raise your kids, working whatever job you can get. And you're walking home from a hard day's work, and that newly enlisted little 14-year-old Roman soldier comes up to you and goes, slaps you right in the face. Everything in you wants to put him in his place. 
But if you strike back, he can put you in prison and you can never see your family again. So Jesus is saying this to an audience that this wasn't cute. This was life. And he said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, give them another surface to do it on. Why would he say that? Because he was teaching them what we know to be true today. True strength is not found in how hard you can hit. True strength is found in self-control. The strongest among you, the strongest among us, don't have to raise our voice. The strongest among us don't have to slam the door. The strongest among us can control not just our physical fighting, but even our tone and face. The strongest among us can de-escalate. Y'all feel that? That changed the world. No one had said something like that before. That was what the like a lot of the entire civil rights movement was based on. Martin Luther King, when they put fire hoses on us and they stick the dogs on us and they hit us with clubs, don't strike back. Show them how much we love them and our true strength by not having to act like them. It's revolutionary, but it's not just in big scenarios. In daily life, turn the other cheek. And I've heard those old Southern preachers, you know, like, you can only turn the other cheek once, right? And then you slap me twice, you're going to get some, right? Like, it's not what it says. It's not what it says. You know, like we like add on to scripture. That's second opinions, chapter seven. And, uh, but, 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 but he launches this like theological grenade. Like, hey, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn another one also. And if you're out there, you're like, ooh, that stings. And then he takes it a step further because he's Jesus and that's what he does. He then says, and if anyone sues you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Now, again, this is something they understood. That same little Roman soldier could come up and maybe your wife just got you a brand new cloak or a brand new tunic. And that same Roman soldier could go, hey, give me that tunic. And you had to give it to him. And here Jesus says, don't just give him the tunic. Say, hey, that tunic is nothing without this cloak. They're a matching set. Besides, you obviously can't take the cold. <laughs> in other words, show your true strength. True wealth is not in what you have, but in what you can give. Some of you, that's the word you needed today. You, you just save and save and save and save and so you can get that car, so you can impress that girl, so you can get that boat because you think that boat's going to make you happy. We all know a boat don't make you happy. Having a friend that has a boat makes you happy. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you think it's about what you have. But some of you know that one of the happiest days in your year is Christmas morning, not because of the presents you give, but because of the look on your children's faces. It is better to give than to receive. Jesus taught us that. So just like on this hillside, one, two punch. I mean, like turn the other cheek, give your stuff away. And if I'm them, I'm like, ow, <laughs> like this is the kingdom. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is hard. This means I change my preferences. This means it's not about how I feel, but rather a deeper truth. Oh, this is up. And then. I mean, I imagine those like two spiritual grenades. He's pulling the pin like, ah, have fun with this one. But then he takes it a step further. And this one I think is less of a grenade. And I imagine metaphorically Jesus pulls out his spiritual sniper rifle and rests that scope, those crosshairs right on all of our hearts on that little part called selfishness. And then he says this next sentence, and it changed my life forever. He says, and when someone 
forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Go the extra mile. How many of you have heard that? Hey, go the extra mile. Work a little harder. That's not what it meant. It didn't mean work harder. See, there's that word in there. He says, when someone forces you to go one mile, go two. When someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Somebody say, go two. Go one. Say it like you mean it. Say, go two. That word there. Because I used to read that like, okay, go the extra mile. Go the extra mile. Got it, got it, got it, got it. But then finally, one day, like five years ago, I saw that word forces. And I was like, wait a second. How would someone force you to go one mile? What does that even mean? And with a simple Google search, you figure things out that are in the Bible. It's amazing. Like, remember back in the day, people, when you'd have to come to church and, like, ask the pastor or open a book? It's crazy. We just Google stuff now, and God's like, look, I work through Google, too. He says, if anyone forces you. So I did the research and found out when Rome would conquer a people group, after the war was done and they had conquered the group, they would deploy these laws called oppressment laws. And oppressment laws were put in place to remind the conquered people group, we own you. Your property, we're in charge. That was the only point of these laws. And one of these laws was called the law of the mile. And the law of the mile stated that at any time, day or night, a Roman soldier could knock on your door, take off his 100 to 200 pound pack off of his mule or his horse, and the man of the household would have to carry that pack a thousand paces, one Roman mile, any direction the soldier chose. And the Jews hated this law. They disdain this law. They abhorred it because the soldiers would abuse them with it. They would show up in the middle of the wedding ceremony. Law of the mile, stop the wedding. Groom, I know you bought that expensive stuff and you're wearing your fanciest clothes. Time to carry my equipment. We'll be back in a few hours. Middle of the night. Law of the mile, come on. Middle of dinner. They would just abuse. Abuse. The Jews hated this so much. If you run around Judea and Samaria at that time, all down the major roads, you would see these stakes in the ground. And what they would do is they would start at their door and they would count out a thousand paces down every major road. And when they got to a thousand, they would put a stake in the ground and they would mark it with their family color. So that way they knew when they got the knock, law of the mile, that was the bare minimum requirement. And they would get to their mark, they would take off the pack and spit on the ground and walk home. They hated this law. And Jesus stood up in front of this audience in that context and says, when someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Do twice as much. Yeah. You feel that? That was a crowd splitter. Because if you're like me, like today we hear that and we're like, eh, that feels uncomfortable. Imagine if that's you and you've had to trudge that mile multiple times. You're going, Jesus, we don't even want to go the first mile. And you're telling us to do twice as much? Absolutely not. I'm not down for this kingdom. I'm out. Right? So those of us that call ourselves Christ followers, this is what we say we believe. That we are a people. When something is required of us, we go to. Somebody say, go to. Now, why would he say that? Why would he command that? Think about it. Imagine you're that Jewish man, and you go home, and it's a day or two later, and you're at dinner, and you get the knock. You just think, not today. Sure enough, door opens up, 200-pound pack. Boom. Law of the mile. Pick up that pack, and you start walking. 
47, 48. You're counting those steps. Sure enough, he takes a turn down the main road. You know your marker is up there. You're hating every step. 97, 98, 99. Somewhere around step 211, you start thinking about that dude Jesus and what he had to say on that mountainside. And you're like, that guy was an idiot. No, I ain't doing this, right? And you start thinking, slap, turn the other cheek. Mm, well, we have to do that. Give away your stuff. What does he want us to be? Broke? This is crazy. Step 638, 639, step 842. And somewhere on the walk, you start thinking, what if I give it a shot? What if I try it? What? I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. But what's the worst that could happen? So you just make up in your mind, sure, let's just see what happens. 998, 999, 1,000, 1,001, 1,002. What happens? The first thing that happens is inside of you. All of a sudden, you realize when you take that step past what's required of you, when you take that step past the first mile, all of a sudden on the inside, you realize, I'm free. Rome doesn't own me. Caesar doesn't own me. My feelings don't own me. My emotions don't own me. Jesus said, I have come to set you free, free indeed, not just from political oppression, but even from your own internal oppression. When you go to, you remind yourself and the world around you, no one owns you because I have been set free in Jesus and I am free indeed. So because Jesus served me, I am free to serve you. True freedom is found in the extra mile. True freedom is found when we go to, but what happens next? Thousand one, thousand two. What does that soldier do? He knows this is your mark. He knows how long you've been walking. What does he do? Hey, hey, bro. That was your mark back there. You don't have to go any further. I know. Where are you going? I'll do another. Right there. A window for the gospel. Because what does that soldier do? Dude, why would you go to for me? Well, let me tell you about a Jesus, about a Savior that went the extra mile for me. And historians tell us that this may be one of the main teachings that helped change the Roman Empire from pagan to Christian. Because mile by mile, second mile by second mile, conversation by conversation, soldier by soldier was converted, not out of force, but out of service and love. Somebody say go to. Somebody say go to. So how does this apply to you? How does this apply to me today? Go the extra mile. I'm going to work a little harder at work tomorrow. Oh, I'm going to do the extra credit on the homework assignment. That's good, but let's just get practical. Can I get all up in your chili for a second for like the last five minutes? Y'all cool with that? Three of you. All right, here we go. I'm going to do it anyway. So, you know, what does it look like? Let's start easy. What does it look like to go to in our relationships, like our friendships, marriage, and stuff like that? Y'all are like, easy, huh? Right? That's where we're going to start? So I'll give you an example. I, my first time I got to pastor was down in Lima, Peru. I was 22 years old and dropped down there um, to be a campus pastor for a church. And about six months after pastoring, I had this amazing couple in the church, Miguel and Mariana. Miguel was like a Telemundo news anchor. And Mariana was one of our small group leaders. And they came up to me after church one Sunday and they said, Pastor Corey, we're struggling in our marriage and we feel like you should do uh, couples counseling with us. And I was like, absolutely not. No, I'm 22, I'm single, never been married. No. I told her, I was like, no, 
And they were surprised. I was like, sorry, there's better people. Bye. Just because a guy's a pastor and we hold a mic and we're elevated 30 inches doesn't mean we have all the answers. Like, your pastor, Torin, is amazing. Can I just say that? Like, y'all have an amazing pastor. He, I envy his beard, his tattoos. He rides a cooler motorcycle than me. And he knows so much scripture and so many dead authors. It's intimidating. Y'all have an amazing pastor. Seriously. And his bride and his family. Like, y'all are just blessed. But we're all messed up, jacked up, shacked up, or locked up in many different ways. Does that make sense? Like, I think a lot of church hurt. Y'all know what church can't hurt you? People at, at church hurt you. And I think a lot of church hurt comes from we put pastors where Jesus should be. We think pastors and church leaders should be perfect. None of us are. We're all really jacked up. Can I just say that on behalf of Torin? I'm sorry. You would agree, right? You're his wife. You know. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, so they come to me and they're like, hey, will you counsel me? And I was like, no. And then they came the next week and they're like, hey, we prayed and God told us you're supposed to counsel me. And I was like, well, you're praying to the wrong God because he didn't tell me that. And I denied him for like, four weeks in a row. And then finally, they just like, the widow that keeps knocking, they just like kept bugging me. And I was like, fine, I'll do one counseling session with you. We'll meet at Starbucks, over to Gutierrez, Monday afternoon, let's make it happen. But that, all I can tell you is what's in the Bible and what I've seen from other marriages. That's it. Okay, so we sit down. I don't know how many of you couples have been to a couple's counseling session, but the first session, I've done many of them now. They're all the same. <laughs> he sits down, she sits down, and one of them launches first. I don't understand why she did it, I don't understand. And then like they'll start and then they start and then they start and, they, and it's exactly that. They start raising their voices in Starbucks. People are looking like, what's going on? Why are they speaking English? This is Peru and it's because I didn't speak Spanish. And like, and they were going and going and going. And I'll never forget, it kind of hit a climax. And my girl goes, I don't understand why she she's not happy. I don't, I'm a good husband, man. I would take a bullet for her. Man, I've never cheated on her and, and I have a good job and I provide for us. It got quiet. I said, okay, guys, cool. Miguel, let's start with you. I said, you just said, and we had just done this teaching, and I knew Miguel, so I could, I could be direct. I said, Miguel, you just said you're a good husband because um, you don't cheat on her, because you're faithful. That's a low bar for success. Amen, ladies? That's a low bar for, like, great spouse. A amen, men, right? Here's my point. I said, I said, Miguel, like, that's a bare minimum requirement to be, like, that's mile one, right? That's what you're supposed to do. He's kind of like, yeah. I said, okay. And then you said you provide for her. You have a good job. Again, Miguel, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah, I said, and then you say you take a bullet for her. I said, Miguel, I know four-year-old boys that would take a bullet for a woman. That doesn't make you a good husband. That just makes you a decent man. Maybe you're not experiencing freedom and joy and love and peace and intimacy in your marriage because you're defining success as the bare minimum requirements. And then I looked at Mariana, and I said, no, Mariana. And she goes, no, 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 don't do me, don't do me, don't do me. <laughs> but so often in life, we want what Jesus promises, that peace, that joy, that love, that gospel. Like, we want that in our lives, but we're just living up to the bare minimum standard and requirement. We, we'll go a step further. What about in our careers and our workplaces, right? What does it look like to go to? Y'all know the way you work tomorrow is as much, if not more, of your worship than how you sing in here? Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. The way you work is your worship. Amen? That's why I know TLC, y'all send out into the workforce, y'all are the hardest workers at your job sites. Y'all are the most studious students, y'all are the best athletes, because it's not about you, it's about the God you serve and the way you reflect him. Amen? There's this old story, Henry Ford 
Um, back when he was alive running Ford Motor Company, Lincoln Motor Company was going out of business and he saw an opportunity. He bought Lincoln Motor Company. That's why they still own them till this day. And the story goes, he wanted to kind of assess why they were failing. And so he came up with a plan. He went to the Lincoln Motor Company building, went up to the C-suite, the top floor where all the executives worked and the administrative assistants and all that. And he went up to the C-suite, the top floor, and he had a giant log placed right outside the main elevator doors. And he just waited to see what happened. You know what happened? Monday morning, elevator doors open up. People see the log and they go, why is this log here? What's this log doing here? Somebody need to move that log. End of Monday workday, 5 o'clock. What is this log still doing here? Man, why, why had nobody taken care of that log? Tuesday, open the doors. The log, man, why is this log still here? You know how long that log sat there? Two weeks. And you know what Henry Ford did? He fired everyone, not that just worked on that floor, anyone that stepped foot on that floor. Why? Because Henry Ford wanted second milers. He didn't want people that defined their job by the small print on their business card. I know none of you say stuff like this, but you've heard stuff like this. Well, that's not in my job description. They don't pay me for that. Yeah, yeah, I know y'all aren't like that, but you've heard people, the same people that say that stuff are the same people that never get the raise or promotion and complain about it. What if Christians showed up to the workplace and yes, did our job description? You know, you, if you just show up on time consistently, you stand out today. Isn't that sad? If you just do the bare minimum that's required of you, some of you that are like managers and bosses, you're like, tell me about it, right? Imagine in your work and at your school if you go to. Like the Bible says Christians are like a city on a hill. We're like a light that can't be hidden. Those people stand out. And they were like, God, give us favor. You ain't got to pray for a lot of favor when you go to. You just naturally stand out. It's amazing. So what does it look like? I mean, just here's little things. Like don't be a clock watcher at work. Don't be that person that's like 455, 458. You're already packing your stuff up. 459, you're like out the door and like five o'clock. Here we go, right? Y'all know, I know it's not y'all. But maybe just ask, hey, God, why do you have me here? Maybe God has you at a job you hate so you can be around someone he loves. Maybe it's not about the job, but rather how you do the job and how you represent the kingdom to the people around you. Somebody say, go to. All right, I'll do one more since y'all are begging for it. What does it look like to go to in your spiritual life? Or let's just say at, at TLC. What does it look like to go to at church? And this was simple. I'll just ask a, a question. And it's a rhetorical question. Like, ask yourself this question. It's introspective. If everybody at TLC served the way I serve, gave the way I give, and invited the way I invite, what would the church look like? If everybody served the way I serve and give the way I give, and invited and evangelized the way I do, what would it look like? Some of you, when I ask that question, you ask yourselves that question, you get excited. You're like, whoa, oh my God. Man, if everybody served the way I serve, man, I'm kicking down these doors, not just Sunday, but I'm here. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pour coffee. I'll scrub the toilets because I learned a long time ago that once I say yes to following Jesus, it's not about me and my preference anymore. It's about his praise and reaching his people. Some of us get that and we're like, yeah. And when I say give the way I give, some of us are like, oh my goodness, do you have any idea what we could do? Because that bare minimum requirement of Christian giving called tithing, mile one, I surpassed that a long time ago. And I'm actually living a life of generosity. 
Man, if everybody gave the way I give, we would be unstoppable. And invite the way I invite, I make it rain in Grand Rapids on those invite cards. Nobody in my neighborhood is without an invite to church because it has changed my life. And I know how much it could change others. Some of us, when we ask ourselves that question, we're like, ah, and it's affirming. We're like, yeah. But if we're honest, some of us felt conviction. Me too. I don't live here. I live like here most of the time. I wake up so selfish. It takes a good hour and a half and two cups of coffee for me to actually get out of my flesh and start making my way towards what's required of me. But if there's a part of that question, and by the way, there's a difference between guilt and conviction. Guilt is of the enemy. Guilt leads to shame. Shame leads to death. Conviction leads to confession, which leads to healing. So if a part of that question, you're like, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. He's convicting you. And that's not to beat you up. It's to build you up. It's to go, oh, that, thank you for identifying an area, a way I can step into the extra mile. I can go too. But here's where I'll leave it. I found in my life, like, I used to preach this and I'd end it there. And it'd be like, hurrah, hurrah, go to, yeah. You know, people used to buy, like, we used to have, like, rubber band, wristbands that say go to. I, I preached this at a company down in the Caribbean. And um, it was, like, 4,000 employees. And I preached it, go to, da, 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 and they all made wristbands. The company, like, grew by 350% the next year because they all just started to try and go to. But I realized I was doing a disservice because what we can hear if we're not careful, and what I could say if I'm not careful and I'm not articulate, is try harder, work harder, do more, and maybe life will get good and God will love you. That is not what I'm saying. If you try and go to, if we try and live this out in our own strength, we will burn out. I've done it. And what shifted in me is I realized that Jesus' whole message wasn't pray a prayer and get out of hell. Jesus' whole message wasn't come to church and live the way you want. Jesus' message was the kingdom is here and follow me into it. Just follow me. And then I realized, oh, we serve a second mile savior. Because God doesn't just create us. He loved us. And then when we messed up and sinned, he didn't kill us. He forgave us over and over and over again. And then he sent his son, Jesus, who lived perfectly and worked miracles and taught amazing things. But then Jesus didn't just do that. Jesus went to a cross in our place and died for us. But then that's not where it stops. Three days later, he rose from the grave, proving he conquered sin and death. If you came in here from another religious background, like you said, it was said earlier, you don't have to believe what we believe to belong, but I'll just challenge you. You know the difference between Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, and Jesus? Three out of the four are still dead. One rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. You raised from the grave, I follow you. He rose from the grave, but that's not all he did. He rose from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven. And he didn't just ascend into heaven. It says he sent his spirit to us, but that's not all he did. While in heaven, he says he prepares a place for us, and that's not all he does. It says he's coming back for us. Jesus doesn't settle at the first mile. He went the second, third, fourth, fifth, and he just turns around and says, follow me. Follow me. And what I realized, just like that Roman soldier and that Jewish man, when you take that step into the extra mile in your relationship, in your workplace, in your church, wherever it is, and you do it from a place of, why would I go to? Let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. 
Let me tell you how messed up I was and how messed up I still am. But the fact that he loved me and the fact that he taught it like, and he cares for me and he protects me and he, and he continues to make a way for me despite my shortcomings. Like, let me tell you about my Jesus. Why do I serve you? Because he first served me. Why do I love you? Because he first loved me. I get to show you a glimpse of what he did for me. And when you do it from that place, oh, it's not a got to, it's a get to. Because then you realize that when you go to, it's less about the people around you and more about what God's doing inside of you. That's why in 2 Corinthians it says this. It reads, and he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what the kingdom's about. It's this reverse, upside-down kingdom where we realize true strength it's not in how hard we can hit, but in self-control. True wealth is not in how much we can hoard and have, but how much we can give. And true life is found not in just doing the bare minimum that is required of us, but expressing and experiencing freedom, love, joy, peace, and fulfillment, and true gospel representation by going to for others because he went to for us. That's a beautiful life, and it's one I'm praying for each and every one of you today. So we're going to worship with song here in a second. And I would just encourage you, if you're a Christ follower, Go to in your worship. Because maybe today you realize, oh, worship's not about me. How, I had somebody ask me one time, they were like, how was the worship today? And I said, I, I can't tell you, it wasn't for me. <laughs> Why don't you ask him? It was for him. We're gonna worship. Maybe some of you are gonna go to and worship for the first time. You're gonna sing a little bit louder. Maybe you're not ready to raise your hands, but you can try a worship frisbee. You can do something. Like, maybe some of you... Maybe some of you today, you're like, ah, I've been living selfishly. My money and my finances are all about me. Maybe just try it. Just try and go to. Maybe some of you need to sign up and serve. You need to serve too. That was not planned, by the way. I love the Holy Spirit. Serve too this summer. Like, go jump in the kids' ministry. Wherever it is, I would just pray that as we sing these next songs, you would have the courage to say, hey, God, if there's an area of my life I'm settling for the first mile, would you show me? And would you help me go to? Somebody say go to. Somebody say go to. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you're a second mile savior. Thank you that you had the courage to stand on a hillside and say very unpopular things, but things that we needed to hear individually and collectively as humans. Thank you that the world doesn't have to be a place where we're just trying to defend ourselves and fight each other. Thank you that TLC is a place of peace and hope and encouragement and edification. God, thank you that life isn't just about what we can have and how much we can get. But God, I thank you that it truly is better to give than receive. And God, right now, I just thank you that TLC is a generous house that is given to change lives here and around the world. But God, specifically, man, I just thank you that you went to for us, that you just continue to serve. God, that, that Jesus, you got down on dirty Middle Eastern floors and held dirty Middle Eastern men's feet and washed their feet and got, got the dirt out from under the toenails. Like you, you did it all to show us the greatest among you 
will be your servant. The greatest among you doesn't live for themselves, but for others. And God, I just pray that blessing over this house, that it would continue to be a house that understands this upside down kingdom, that it would continue to be a place where we learn and grow as servants because you first served us. And God, we just declare a heart of gratitude. We are so grateful, Jesus, that you didn't just command this, but you lived it. And we commit to follow you, God, and go to. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen.